Please turn with me in Scripture to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Luke, chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. And the chief priest and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. They feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him, and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Let us pray. Great Heavenly Father, you are the author of all scripture. You have promised to us that all of it is profitable, all of it is useful, all of it is needful in the life of your people. We confess, Lord, that so often we come to it and it means very little. Its implications are not clear to us. And we do not see Christ much in it because we are blind. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning and receive the good things that you have for us to understand this challenging passage and to make good application to it in our hearts and in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Come now to the middle of this chapter, Luke chapter 2. And to this section that could be summarized as render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And to understand it, we need to spend a little time understanding the situation that is presented. As we all know, the Jewish leaders had the goal of destroying Jesus for some time. That had been stated very plainly earlier on and this plan they had been prosecuting for a time. And thus far they had been unable to do it. And they recently have been trying to discredit Jesus in terms of his authority with the people. They figure as long as he's seen as this authority figure, actually maybe even the Christ, maybe the Messiah, in the eyes of the people, they can't do much against him. They feared the people because they, they knew Jesus to be, at the very least, a prophet. Well, they failed there, and Jesus responds by pointing out that they're like the wicked tenants in his parable who are trying to kill their Lord. But undeterred by this rebuke, they are now settled on trying to frame Jesus as a political rebel. And that is, of course, a strategy that is ultimately adopted, that is 
really in human terms, certainly does not begin to explain in divine terms, but it is in human terms what brought Jesus to the cross as he was uh, framed, as it were, as a political rebel. And in verse 20, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. They asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this question in itself was a very legitimate one. Well, I, I suppose so. At least the issue was a legitimate one, one that was current in their day. It was an important issue. You know that Caesar, of course, was the head of the occupying Roman Empire, the pagan Roman Empire. In addition to him being a pagan rather than a Jew, he blasphemously claimed to be divine. And that much was even on the coin. And the, the, the coinage, the coin that was used for the tax of denarius, depicted him seated on a throne and wearing the clothing of a priest. And the the word, the title that was given to him was Pontiff Maxim. probably know that word Pontiff because someone else uses that title now, equally illegitimately. But Pontiff Maximus, the greatest or the highest priest. And for that reason, nationalists, loyal Jews, said that paying the tax was high treason against God. And that was all in the air as they were asking this question. And so their device, they come to him acting as if they are very sincere. They are stumped on this really important question. Teacher, you're the only one that can help us. Please, please tell us, should we pay the tax or not? But of course, the beauty of this from their perspective is it puts Jesus on a dilemma. Because if Jesus says yes, it makes him look like a sympathizer with the Romans or even traitor. And it certainly diminishes his popularity, diminishes his authority with the people. But if he says no, well, then they really have him. Because then he's an enemy of the state. And all they have to do is turn him in to the Roman government. And their problem is solved. But, of course, we know that Jesus is not so easy to catch in his words because once again Jesus confounds them with his perfect wisdom and knowledge. Reminder, by the way, that in all these things we may bring up, create dilemmas, apparent dilemmas in which we cannot possibly do the right thing. We can, in our own thoughts, say that, well, we can either do this or we can, we can do this and it's impossible for us to be obedient to God. We're in some sort of impossible dilemma. But as Jesus demonstrates once again, it's not so. It's not so. They could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Now, in addition to teaching us about Christ and his perfect wisdom, it certainly does teach us something about the relationship between the believer and the civil government. It reminds us, as I say, that there is no division in the moral law. The very same law that I read to you that on the first tablet tells us that we should have no other gods before the living God also tells us to be obedient to those in authority. And it's good to remind us of these things. And in all these things, we pray that we would render unto God that which is his, particularly worship. Even as we look at this 
passage which some may consider rather dry, we pray that we would render him due honor and worship. Well, the title is just simply God and Caesar. It's the title this morning, God and Caesar. And there are these three points. Wicked men test Christ, render what is Caesar's, and render what is God's. Those three points. Wicked men test Christ, render what is Caesar's, render what is God's. Well, first of all, it says in our first point, wicked men test Christ. We read in verse 21, then they ask him saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? These wicked men are up to their tricks again in testing Christ. And I want us, first of all, to notice the deception in what they say. They speak as if they are humble learners coming to have some issue resolved by Christ. But the whole point of the interaction is to get Jesus killed. What deception. Notice also the flattery in what they say as they seek to butter him up. You know, flattery works on the basis of pride. You understand that? Not everyone is susceptible to flattery, but only those who have within themselves the seed of pride. And if you affirm my pride by giving me more than what I really do in the cold light of day, then maybe I will respond favorably to you and grant your request or give you some gift or something along those lines. But of course, there are two problems with coming to Jesus with flattery. Because for one thing, there is no way anyone could ever give the Son of God more than what he is due. You can't flatter the Son of God. There's nothing that you could say that's high enough to be more than what is, is due. And secondly, Jesus had no pride. His humility was complete. We're reminded again of of the, the basic raw material temptation. How does it work upon someone? And although he was fully human and therefore subject to temptation in a, a natural sort of way, there just was, was nothing in his heart that gave any kind of traction at all to such temptations. There was no pride to be worked upon. His humility was perfect, complete. We notice the deception, we notice the flattery, we also notice the hypocrisy in what they say. They say, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Now, if they really believe that, if they really believe that they'd come to this teacher who spoke the word of God and truth and taught rightly, then they should have repented, and they should have believed what he very plainly taught about himself in the way of salvation. And they didn't. Because they didn't really mean what they said. They were hypocrites. And again, sometimes people come. They come to church. They come to the Bible. They open the word of God. And they say, we want to know the truth. We, they say they are seekers. They say they want to learn. But in reality, they have no intention whatsoever of receiving that which God gives to them. Notice the hypocrisy in what is said here. And notice, finally, D, 
how they are putting God to the test in this, because that's what Jesus says. Now, Jesus could have pointed out all those things. He could have said, you're lying. He could have said, you're flattering me, or trying to flatter me. You're, you're a hypocrite. He could have said any of those things, and they would have been true. But the one thing that he chooses to point out to them was the fact that they were putting him to the test. And perhaps that was the greatest sin of them all. You remember how the Lord Jesus had responded to Satan back in Luke chapter 4, a long time ago. Remember in your minds maybe that sermon of the, the testing of the Lord Jesus in the desert. Then he brought him, that is Satan, bringing Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You see, Satan is coming and using the word of God speciously. He's very good at that. He's not taking it in context. He's not taking it in the the theological context of the whole word of God. He is presenting scripture as against scripture. And actually coming as this as a means to get Jesus to sin. What a misuse of scripture. And to defeat him. Jesus answered and said, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's the way he answers. In that word. It's the same basic word used in our passage, to test. You shall not test the Lord your God. You shouldn't put him to the test because he's not a circus animal to be tested like that. He's your God. And Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 16, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. And yet these people were doing this, and Jesus asked him why. Here they are putting the Son of God to the test, and that, was, and that was a sin. Now, in the point of fact, Jesus passed their test. Just as God passed the test in Master, they put him to the test. That was sinful. There's no test that you can put to God that he doesn't pass. And God, just to show them back in Massa, actually did what was needed at the moment and passed that test. And so Jesus passes their test they could not in verse 26 catch him in his words in the presence of the people they marveled at his answer and kept silent Jesus passes and they fail as they put the son of God to the test well that was our first point simply to point out that wicked men put Jesus to the test secondly render what is Caesar's consider the content now of these words and In some sense, there isn't much to be added to it. It's a very, very simple principle, what he says. Render unto Caesars what is Caesars. Let's just go through, step by step, just a little bit of of what he says and how he says it. First of all, in verse 24, he says, show me a denarius. Maybe this is where some preachers get the idea of of visual aids. But this one was a very, very important and powerful one because he asked the question, well, first of all, what is the, why, why a denarius instead of a shekel or something else? Well, because they actually did have different money for different things, different denominations. They had a sort of money that went to the temple. And you didn't take this denarius and put it in the temple. But what you did do it is pay the poll tax, the annual poll tax. It's about a day's wages, this denarius. 
and it was most certainly Roman coinage. All right, so this poll tax is the tax in question, and so Jesus wants a coin that pertains to this tax in question, and he asks the question, whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. Because again, the image, you remember, and the inscription, that blasphemous image of the emperor and the blasphemous words on it, which he, he claims to be the son of the, of the divine Augustus, as well as claiming to be the, the Pont, uh, Pontus Maximus, uh, these were contentious and controversial matters. But Jesus doesn't ask, do they depict truth? This thing here, is it true? Is it inspired and inerrant like the word of God? He doesn't ask that question. But rather, whose image and inscription does it have? It's a rather different and significant question. And the answer is rather simple and straightforward. It's Caesar's. It's Caesar's. In verse 25, he says to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, you say, what is in the significance of this beyond the fact that it simply confounds them and puts them to shame? Well, first of all, we say, A, that there, are, there is such a thing as Caesar's things, and that's important in itself. There, are, we, there is legitimacy to Caesar's things. The civil government has legitimacy in the eyes of God because he could have easily have said there was no such thing. Right? Caesar doesn't have. He could have said, this poll tax, this, this, this thing here means nothing. Caesar has absolutely no authority in this place. And he has, he has no claim on us whatsoever. He could have said that, but he didn't. The civil government has legitimacy in the eyes of God. Indeed, more than that, it is a divine institution. It is not accidentally that Jesus is affirming the status quo You see, that was the problem, wasn't it? The way the problem was framed for them was that we have this opposition between between God and the civil government. And and the, the question is whether we're going to affirm this alien imposition of of the civil government. But it was more than Jesus just saying that they have legitimacy. It was that the state is a divine institution. That's what it says very clearly in Romans 13.1. And consider the language that Paul uses that is very reminiscent of what Jesus says here. Let every, this is Romans 13.1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Wow. If you came here as a rebel without a cause... If you came here as a, as a child of the age in which seemingly every authority is decried, oh, well, it, pretty much every authority except the authority of the one who's saying it at the time. Hollywood loves to decry authority, but they, 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 they never deconstruct themselves, right? And, and everyone does that. Every source of authority in our age pretty much tries to set itself up and say that all the other ones are illegitimate. But no, actually there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And it goes on. It doesn't stop there. Verse 2. Whoever re- therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. 
Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. Now, friends, I'm sure most of you have read that passage before, but for some of you, that's probably very startling language to hear that this civil government, the rulers, and indeed the military, are God's minister to you for good. Law enforcement. God's minister to you for good. But that's what it says. It says, on the other hand, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. You see how it goes. The day of judgment has not yet come. How then are we going to deal with those who sin in violent ways and in, in, in wicked ways in this world? The, the answer is the civil government must take care of it. How are we, the day of judgment has not come. How then are we going to be protected from those who would do us harm, do, do our children harm? It's God's provision to provide this civil government and the, the law enforcement and the military that go along with it. They are God's ministers for good. Verse 5, therefore you must be subject. By the way, the implication of all that is, of course, you have to pay taxes. How are these soldiers and these policemen and these magistrates going to be paid? Taxes. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. You see how that goes? The people in the world may do what is right only because they fear the sword. They fear the punishment of the civil government. They don't want to get in, in trouble with the police. And so they render an eye service to the law. But as for us, as for God's people, we have another and more important and higher reason for conscience' sake. We say that the authorities that are there are there because God put them there. And they are God's ministers to us. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And so we render obedience, we render taxes to Caesar. We render, therefore, to all their due, in fact, in verse 7, words, again, very, very reminiscent of our text. This is, I'm speaking still in Romans. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so it is right not only that we pay the taxes And not just as some of the leaders of the day probably did in a very begrudging sort of and contemptuous fashion. But indeed we render honor to the ones that God has put in authority over us. And friends, that is so important in our day. I might mention this again briefly in the application, but just to say that in the politics of our day we are very tempted to be contemptuous of those in authority over us. And we, for conscience' sake as God's people, must not succumb to that. Now, these are the things of Caesar, and we should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Christians should perform the duties owed to the civil magistrate. Now, I will say again, it is doubtful whether those people, those religious leaders, actually were doing this. They themselves, in their hearts, were rebels and were seeking to find ways to get out of the obligations they had to the state. They weren't even doing that much. But far less were they doing our third and final point, which is render unto God. 
Render unto God. In verse 25, then he said to him, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. At a basic level, of course he's saying it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar, we just said, but far beyond that, Jesus is reminding them of their more important and larger duties that are included. The, the rendering under Caesar is just a small included thing. Right? It's not even the whole of the moral law. That's why I, I read to it, it, to put it in context. Right? Our, our obedience to the civil authorities, it comes under the, the heading of the fifth commandment as we submit to those in authority over us. Yes, primarily our parents. But yes, to all those in authority over us. That's one commandment. What about all the rest of them? What about all the rest of them? All these things are God. And you know what? Beyond that, ultimately everything. Render unto God the things that are God's. What aren't God's? All the worship that is due him, we should be worshiping. Friends, we should be worshiping God every moment of the day. We should be praying. We should be interceding when we should be praising God. We should be rejoicing every moment of every day because that is what everything that we look. Look at the creation. Okay, it's overcast in that direction. But we look in this direction, we see the beautiful trees and the leaves, no, no two of which are precisely the same. Even looking down at our feet, we see the wooden floor. And there are no two of these little wooden tiles that are precisely the same. They're all different and all unified as well. And all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. You know, the, the world doesn't give glory where glory is due. It's so sad, isn't it, the experience of watching that video series, Planet Earth. It's magnificent, isn't it? But there's David Attenborough. David Attenborough and his militant atheism and evolutionary theology, even the most obvious things that you want to shake him and say, this is a creation of God, it's a design of God, there's no way that evolution could have possibly ever have done this. It is fundamentally impossible. These birds of paradise doing their complex things and all the rest, it has no purpose whatsoever except to glorify the living God. David Attenborough doesn't give glory to God for these things. He does not render to God the things that are God's. But we must. But we must. We give him all the worship. We give him all the glory. We give him all the honor and the praise that are due his name. And all these things, rendering to God the things that are God's, certainly points out the one thing that they were certainly not doing at this point. What were they doing? They were coming... In deception and hypocrisy and flattery, attempted flattery to the Son of God. Rather than rendering him the obedience and the worship that were due his holy name, they were surely not rendering to God the things that are God's. Well, friends, again, this is a very simple concept, and I will not belabor this except to go now to some applications, five brief applications. First of all, don't test Christ. Don't put God to the test and don't test Christ. He will always pass and you will always fail. In particular, again, there are those who, who make some sort of test for, I will believe if... 
And they create a syllogism or they create some sort of criterion for evidence or criteria which is impossible to be fulfilled. There is no way that Christ could do it and they imagine that they win. But friends, (laughs) that works very well among men. And you might even stump me, but you don't stump the living God and you you don't stump, stump Jesus Christ. Okay. If you have in your heart and mind the idea of trying to put him to the test, just remember, he always passes and you always fail. But secondly, I would say this. There is one, one little way, the thing that you can do, you can taste and see. Right? So don't, put, don't test Christ, but secondly, do taste and see. Because that is the one kind of test, the one kind of trial that God actually invites. He certainly does not say, well, put me to the test. But he does say this, Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And beloved, that is a beautiful truth. There are, are some who, who don't know for sure about this God, but all you can do is come and taste and see. We're going to have lunch soon. And you may not be familiar with all these things. It's common, isn't it? You don't. It's not like an ordinary meal where you have you know, only this sort of entree and this sort of side and that's about it. There are many, many things and maybe you'll come and you'll taste a little bit and maybe someone's chili or something or lasagna is really, really good and you'll come back for more. God says Christ is like that. He says even if your faith is half-hearted, even if you come to him tentatively, he invites that. He says to come and taste. Come and follow Christ just a little. And see, find out for yourself whether he's a, he's a hard man or, in fact, whether he's incredibly gracious and merciful and altogether lovely. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Thirdly, I would say render unto Caesar. As I, I mentioned in the course of things, it is so tempting these days to be contentious of political authority on both sides of the Atlantic. I saw that in my travels. That Christians were truly struggling in the, the current situation of the American election and will be struggling uh, no matter what happens in that. And we struggle as well, don't we? Well, we must not fall afoul of such things. You know, at least our political rulers aren't are claiming to be divine you know, and, and not engaged probably in the most kind of open blasphemy and, and idolatry in that sort of way. And we need to remember that the civil authorities really are of God. Look, when, it's not just when Jesus said that he's, he has a denarius in his hand, which seems incredible. It was when Paul said that this man who himself was going to be put to death by one of these Roman emperors. He's the one who says that ruling authorities are of God. We must render obedience to them. So long as they ask of us things that are in the political sphere, obviously if they tell us, if if Caesar then tells you to worship Caesar, you can't do it. But if Caesar is only telling you to pay taxes, if he tells us things that are not forbidden by Scripture, then we, we render obedience to them. And by the way, it is for the reason of the double reason, not just for fear, but also for conscience, that Christians should make should make the very best subjects and citizens. For which reason, fourthly, 
We should not fall for old tricks. Okay? Because hopefully they're not going to catch us out for being bad subjects, poor citizens. They're going to have to look for other things, aren't they? Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Don't fall for old tricks. So I I believe that this will soon enough become relevant to the Christian church in this nation in the years to come. They, They won't hopefully get us on being bad citizens. We're the best subjects and citizens. But they just might send spies pretending to be righteous so they might seize on our words in one way or another to get us in trouble with the state. And therefore we should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Fourthly and finally, we should render unto God supremely. I cannot do this application any justice. I've mentioned some ways already, but let me just say again, in terms of our obedience, we can never, ever, ever make false reasons for disobedience. We can't ever come up with some conundrum in which we say, I can't possibly be obedient to God in this situation. There is always a way to do so. This Lord, who is not put off by this, he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and he sees no contradiction in that. There's always a way for us to be obedient. He doesn't give us, he's not in the business of giving us impossible dilemmas. We need to pray for clarity in these things. As I say, we also need to give him glory in all things, particularly in anything having to do with this church. It's always such a, I thank you for your prayers for me and my time, but surely one of the greatest uh, challenges was to accurately convey all that has happened, is happening, we pray shall happen here, and, and making sure that God receives the glory. Because the world is so used to giving man the glory. And we must be very careful to give God what is God's. And certainly in terms of worship. I think I'll just stop there as we render unto God what is God's. We've got to worship Him. What a wonderful privilege we have every Lord's Day to come worship the triune God. And particularly this evening as we come as well to the Lord's Supper. And in doing so this whole day, let us self-consciously render to God all the many wondrous things that are God's in worship. Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, we are eternally grateful to you, Lord, that you speak words of truth to us. We pray that we'd not come in hypocrisy, but rather in sincerity, really believing, Lord, that your words are true, and that in them that we find life, and we find the pathways that are right and good, that will lead to our blessing. We pray that you would conquer every heart of rebellion, Rebellion against the state that you've established, but far worse, against yourself and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have installed him on your own holy hill. We pray, Lord, that we would bow before him and render unto you fully all the things that are yours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.